This is a message by Pastor Mark Fox at Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. For more information about the church, go to antiochchurchnc.org. Good morning, everybody. So we are going to end 1 Peter. We're going to be in 1 Peter 5, verses 10 through 14. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, extorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. I agree with that prayer, his words. Welcome, Antioch. All of you are with us this morning. Those who are online, we welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Peter has come to the end of his letter, and we've come to the end of this sermon series. This letter was written to the scattered churches filled with elect exiles, and so therefore we are part of that number. And it seems like he's come full circle when he gets to the end here. Remember how he started out? He started with an exclamation of worship, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about how we were born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We were given an inheritance and have been given that inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and unfading. And that, that inheritance is being kept for us in heaven. And we also are being guarded in our faith by the power of God for salvation. And he says, you rejoice even when you suffer various trials, you go through trials because they result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ returns. And so now Peter returns to those same themes. And we've seen the theme of suffering all through this book, but he wants to make sure he says one final word on suffering. And he reminds us, as we saw last week, all the brotherhood around the world, and that's true today as it was then, all the brotherhood are going through the same kinds of suffering, various kinds of suffering for the same purpose, and that is eternal glory in Christ. Listen, we know this, saints. Faith does not remove us from what is painful or from what is hard or sad or tragic. Life in the a fallen world is hard. If Peter has taught us anything in this letter, it's that our suffering in Christ is purposeful because of God's providence. Our suffering is purposeful in the providence of God. It has purpose in our security in Christ does not shake or does not, takes us through many dangers, toils, and snares. Suffering does not shake our security, it strengthens it. It does not remove our faith, it proves our faith. I like the Puritans saying, they used to say, sorry about that, they used to say, trials come to prove and to reprove us. Suffering is part of the promise of sanctification of the elect. Paul said, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of the Son, the image of his Son. And so that's the part of sanctification that we're all in right now. If you're born again, you're being sanctified. 
If you're born again, you're being sanctified. You've been justified. You will be glorified, but you're being sanctified, right? And part of that is so that you'll look more like Jesus, and that involves some painful suffering at times to make us look like Jesus. A simple study of the Bible should relieve us of any nonsense that we're supposed to be living our best life now. Or that if we go through something hard, that's proof positive that Jesus or God doesn't love us, or maybe he doesn't even exist. No. We can say with James, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. Not because we're masochistic, because we like pain, but because we know the purpose of those trials is for God's glory. God uses trials to make us look more like Jesus. Some of you have heard the name J.M. Barry. He wrote something famous. He was a Scottish playwright. He was the ninth of ten children, and two of his older brothers died before he was born in their infancy. When James Barry was six, his 14-year-old brother died in a tragic accident. And Barry said of these losses, that's where my mother got her soft eyes. And that's why other mothers ran to her when they too had lost a child. You see, our suffering has purpose in the providence of God. So let's learn from this passage today. I'm going to flip it around if you don't mind. We're going to look at the last section first and the first section last. So our two main points will be final greetings and then grace and glory. Final greetings and then grace and glory. Now, Peter, like his fellow apostle Paul, knows that he's not serving God on an island by himself. He names some companions who have walked with him in ministry. He mentions two faithful brothers in his final greetings. First is Silvanus, a faithful brother to Peter, who most likely is the messenger. This is probably what he means here. Uh, Not the one who helped him write the book, but Silvanus took the book and took the letter to the people, to the churches that were scattered about. Uh, and, and so we also know this man as Silas. Silvanus is just a formal name for Silas. Silas was a nickname for Silvanus, if you will. And, and Silas, who was sent along with Paul and Barnabas to Antioch. You can find that in Acts chapter 15. They were sent there to encourage the work among the Gentiles, which was exploding, Right? And it says that they went, they went and Silas encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. He's referred to as a prophet in that passage in Acts chapter 15. Silas would later accompany who? On a second missionary journey, the apostle Paul. He's evidently also a close companion to Peter, considered to be one who was faithful and trustworthy, not only to deliver the letter, but the understanding was, hey, Silas, you're going to take this letter to these churches, but you're also going to help them understand it. If there's anything they don't understand, you know why I wrote this. You know my meaning. You know me. Interpret it for them. And we have that same ministry. We're often sent not just to tell people the good news of Jesus like like, uh, Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch, but to interpret God's word for them. This is what this means. And this is how you can come to know Jesus. So we are walking messengers of the word of God. The second faithful brother Peter mentions is Mark. Now we know Mark from Acts chapter 12. It's where we first meet Mark. Remember when Peter was released from prison? He went to where he knew the church would be gathering, which was in the home of Mary, who was the mother of a young man named John, also called Mark. Mark. 
John Mark. John Mark would accompany Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. <laughs> he would also quit after only a short time. We don't know the reason. But that, that divided Paul and Barnabas when they decided to take a second missionary journey. Uh, they argued about whether to bring John Mark along. Paul said, we're not bringing him. He quit on us. Barnabas said, I'm taking him then. And so there were two missionary journeys that took off. God often multiplies through division. And so Paul and Silas, whom he chose Silas, there's Silas again, he chose Silas and Barnabas chose John Mark. And we know that that was part of the restoration of this young man who had quit. For whatever reason, he had left on the first journey and now he's being restored to ministry by Barnabas. And, and later we see in 2 Timothy, Mark was also restored in Paul's eyes. Because Paul wrote to Timothy, also get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. He was useless earlier. He's useful now. We're also thankful for John Mark because he wrote the second gospel. And it's one of our favorites, right? Our trials, his trials, our trials are meant to prove us and to reprove us. So Peter ends the letter with something that we can all practice during the greeting time. He tells the churches, greet one another with a kiss of love. Paul said the same thing to the Roman church. He said, greet one another with a holy kiss. I don't see Ann Newman. If Ann were here today, she could all teach us how to do that, right? But apparently, it's believed this was part of the service in the first century and probably for centuries after that. This was part of the service every Sunday, and it sent it sent terror into the spines of the introverts in every congregation around the world and probably a lot of extroverts as well but there it is pucker up here's why we do it i think it was a kiss on the cheek that demonstrated full acceptance and love for each person it was a friendly friendly gesture meant to battle against even the appearance of cliques or division in the body of christ we should welcome everyone we should welcome everyone to the congregation, whether we like them or not, whether they're our best friends or not, because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul's and Peter's taking it up a notch here. He said, no, don't just welcome them with a hug. Give them a kiss. All right, so that leads us to the second point. Let's talk about grace and glory, verses 10 and 11. As I said, Peter brings the letter full circle. And he reminds the elect exiles once again that suffering is purposeful, but it's temporary. He says, after you have suffered a little while. Now, I can understand some of you might feel like your suffering has gone on a lot longer than just a little while, right? Indeed, there are people who suffer most or all of their lives from chronic illness or disabilities, but, but, but the Bible tells us we're not victims of chance. We're not tossed about by the winds and waves of fate or cruel destiny. Instead, the promise is that the God of all grace is for us. And He has called us to eternal glory. Eternal. That's the important word there. Eternal glory with God in Christ. Right? So even though our suffering may last a lifetime, it's still a little while compared to the eternal glory we have waiting for us. In light of eternity, all suffering is a little while. The Puritans like, like to say affliction may be lasting, but it's not everlasting. 
Now, then Peter tells us four things. Here's four things that are happening right now. This is not just for then when Jesus returns. That's when they will be completed. But these four things, he says, God is doing in your life largely through suffering, right? C.S. Lewis said God shouts in our, or whispers in our pleasure, but he shouts in our pain. We learn so much through suffering. God is glorified in it. We're changed by it, but not just suffering. We are being sanctified through every experience. And when we see Jesus face to face, we will be complete. John, John wrote, we will be like him. So what are those four things? First, he says, he will restore us. It's the word used for restoring a broken bone, putting it back in place. Some of you have experienced that. Or the restoration of a ship that's brought into dry dock because it's broken. There's something wrong with it. It needs to be uh, repaired so it can be used again. Hebrews 13, 21 uses the same word when the writer says this, God will equip you, same word, restore, equip. God will equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in, the, in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So God's restoring, restoring us. He's equipping us to do his will. And that restoration is sometimes painful, like a leg that's been broken and put back into place. Or maybe you've gone through rehab. Uh, because of an injury. And you know that the, the job description for a physical therapist is he, he wants to hurt you so he can help you, right? There's pain involved in physical therapy because you can't get better unless you go through that process. The process is painful but purposeful, just as our suffering can be. Second, it says he will confirm us. The word means to establish. It means to strengthen or set fast or, or permanent so you won't topple or be knocked over. That tree looks like it's about to fall. Remember years ago when Cindy and I were in our first house and we were probably getting one of our first Christmas trees, maybe our first live one. I remember going out into the fields behind our house and cutting down this pine that was just one notch above Charlie Brown's tree. You know what I'm saying? And it looked terrible, but we put it inside. I had a stand, and it wasn't a very good stand, and I put the tree in there, but it was leaning, and, and it didn't look like the tree was going to be standing up very, very straight. So I just had a brilliant idea. I'll get a, a cinder block in the backyard, and, and that will help level it somehow. So I ran out. It's dark. I knew exactly where the cinder blocks were. I ran out there, and without gloves, I reached out and grabbed one, and I carried it back to the back stoop. And when I got to the light and put the, the cinder block down so I could open the door, I saw right beside of my fingers the biggest, healthiest black widow I had ever seen in my life. And I yelled and dropped the cinder block on my foot and, and, uh, and then uh, got rid of the, the, the spider. You know, God doesn't use cinder blocks or spiders to help us to stand up straight or top. And look, if you're going to find your cinder block in the dark, I recommend a flashlight and, and some, some gloves. But God strengthens us by means of his grace. He helps us to stand up by means of his grace. What are those means? His word, the prayer, the church, fellowship with our brothers and sisters. Those are means of grace God has given to every person in this place. And we must use those. Paul said this, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. He's just mentioning there one means of grace. The word, prayer, the church, and fellowship with the brothers and sisters. And we could add the sacraments to that. We take the Lord's Supper once a month. That's a means of grace 
to strengthen us so that we can stand up straight. Third, he says he strengthens us. It looks like the same word all over again, but it's not, a, it's not the same. It's, God not only keeps us from toppling, but he gives us strength to accomplish his purpose. He makes us strong in our souls. This is soul strength. This is not physical strength. There's some value in that as well. But, but we want to be spiritually strong. That's why Paul said exercise in the body is, is useful for some things, but spiritual exercise is useful for all things, not just for this life, but also for the life which is to come. So he said, exercise yourself towards godliness. Look, outwardly, we are wasting away, right? Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. That's the promise of the Bible. So when you look in the mirror, don't be alarmed. You're supposed to look that way, right? But in, if you could look into your soul, you'd see this mighty soul of a warrior of God flexing those spiritual muscles because you have been practicing those. You've been developing those. You've been using God's means of grace. And that's what he's saying here. He will strengthen you. You know, it would be a good practice for all of us, but especially those of us who are like me, seasoned saints, read old, to read Isaiah 40 every week. Listen, listen to this passage. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. This is for us. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths, even you young people, shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they, all of them, all they, including old people, but they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That is an encouraging word for us who are feeling weak and tired and perhaps like we don't have anything left to give. Now, I honestly believe, I'm just going to tack this on here, I believe we who are older or more mature, regardless of age, if you're 30 years old but you're mature in the faith, this, this, this helps you too, that we have been given strength by God to encourage and to teach and to strengthen someone younger to come along behind, listen, saints, to come along behind and to pick up where you will leave off. Our job as older saints, that's why I, I, I encourage the older women, I encourage the older men, not just to sit back and say, I'm done, I finished my task, I, 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 you know, I, I poured it into my family, now I'm just going to sit back, I'm retired. No. No, your job now is to pour into the younger women, the younger men, the younger people in the church. Find your replacement and train him or her up. And pray for my replacement. That day's coming. Not this year, probably not for a while, but soon. <laughs> and, and I'm praying God would bring that young man, younger man into the church because right now we don't know that that person is here. It's our gift to the future of Antioch to do what I just described for you, you people who are mature in the faith. And again, this is not just for people who are over 60. This is for people in their 40s and 50s 
who are mature, 30s as well, help. And that's just what discipleship is. Help other people come up beside you and help do what you do. Fourth, he will establish us. That means he will place us on a firm foundation. The word means to make us steadfast, standing upon something that will not be shaken. He's done that. Some of you have seen this dam, right? That's the Hoover Dam. It's on the border of Arizona and Nevada, or Nevada, however you want to say that. Imagine a four-foot wide, wide, four wide sidewalk that circles the earth at the equator. You'd have about the amount of concrete that went into that dam if you put a four-foot wide sidewalk all around the earth. That's how much concrete it took. The dam is 760, 726 feet tall. It's 1,244 feet long, nearly a quarter of a mile. At the base, the dam is 660 feet thick. That type of foundation is necessary because the water that's hitting the base of that dam is bringing 45,000 pounds of pressure per square foot. But God has promised to establish us on a foundation that makes the Hoover Dam look like something your kids make out of jello. He does that so that when we face trials, when we go through suffering for a little while, we won't fall over. We won't give in. We won't give up. Our hearts may waver. Our strength may be small for a time. And Peter knew this better than anyone. He had seen God do this. He's seen it in his own life, how God had restored him, right? And how God had confirmed him, how God had strengthened him, how God had established him. And that would be necessary for the greatest trial, perhaps, of his life when he would be led to his execution, crucified upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. At least that's the way tradition tells us he died. Peter knew and God promises to restore and confirm and strengthen and establish us. You know, I was thinking about different people in the Bible. We could talk about Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But my heart went to John the Baptist, and he's in prison. And I, I just imagine, and I don't even know if they were alive at this point, but I just imagine Zechariah and Elizabeth, his parents, talking about their son, knowing he's in prison and knowing probably what's going to happen to him. And maybe they said, you know, is he going to be okay? Uh, and, and one said to the other, I, I think we put him on the right path as a little boy grew up, uh, growing up in our house. We taught him about God. We taught him to trust in God. Even in times when he can't see God's plan, I, I think he will be okay. And he was. God kept him. Even through momentary doubts, God kept him. Just like God will keep us all the way to the end. God will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish us. He's doing that now. He will do it perfectly when Jesus returns. And after Peter writes this, just like he started, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He started with worship. He goes back to worship here because he says, at least in the King James Version, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In our version, it says, to him be all the dominion, or to, be, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. To him, dominion forever. Let's pray.
Father, we're thankful for this book. We're thankful for the encouragement that we've received from it over the months. We're thankful for the promises you've given us and the, uh, the way that you have uh, taught us and blessed us, especially, Lord, about trials and about suffering, about suffering unjustly, about, about the grace that you give us when we are suffering unjustly through persecution. Lord, I pray that you continue to strengthen this church and establish us on the rock that the foundation that will never be moved. Continue to establish us in the truths of this word. And as we go into this season of giving and celebrating your birth, the Advent season, we look forward to seeing how you uh, loved us perfectly and still love us perfectly through the gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you for this congregation. Thank you for the work that you're doing here to establish us with one another and in Christ. And to him be all the glory and honor and praise. And all of God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. Antioch meets every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at 1600 Powerline Road in Elon, North Carolina. For more information about Mark and the books he's written, go to jmarkfox.com.